Phase the Fifth, The Woman Pays, Part Two. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty Seven. Midnight came and passed silently, for there was nothing to announce it in the valley of the Froom. Not long after one o'clock, there was a slight creak in the darkened farmhouse, once the mansion of the D'Urbervilles. Tess, who used the upper chamber, heard it and awoke. It had come from the corner step of the staircase, which, as usual, was loosely nailed. She saw the door of her bedroom open, and the figure of her husband cross the stream of moonlight with a curiously careful tread. He was in his shirt and trousers only, and her first flush of joy died when she perceived that his eyes were fixed in an unnatural stare on vacancy. When he reached the middle of the room, he stood still and murmured in tones of indescribable sadness, Dead! 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 Under the influence of any strongly disturbing force, Clare would occasionally walk in his sleep, and even perform strange feats, such as he had done on the night of their return from market just before their marriage, when he re-enacted in his bedroom his combat with the man who had insulted her. Tess saw that continued mental distress had wrought him into that somnambulistic state now. Her loyal confidence in him lay so deep down in her heart that, awake or asleep, he inspired her with no sort of personal fear. If he had entered with a pistol in his hand, he would scarcely have disturbed her trust in his protectiveness. Clare came close and bent over her. Dead! 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 he murmured. After fixedly regarding her for some moments with the same gaze of unmeasurable woe, he bent lower, enclosed her in his arms, and rolled her in the sheet as in a shroud. Then lifting her from the bed with as much respect as one would show to a dead body, he carried her across the room, murmuring, "'My poor, poor Tess! My dearest, darling Tess! So sweet, so good, so true!' The words of endearment, withheld so severely in his waking hours, were inexpressibly sweet to her forlorn and hungry heart. If it had been to save her weary life, she would not, by moving or struggling, have put an end to the position she found herself in. Thus she lay in absolute stillness, scarcely venturing to breathe and wondering what he was going to do with her, suffered herself to be borne out upon the landing. "'My wife! Dead! Dead!' he said. He paused in his labours for a moment to lean with her against the banister. Was he going to throw her down? Self-solicitude was near extinction in her, and in the knowledge that he had planned to depart on the morrow, possibly for always, she lay in his arms in this precarious position with a sense rather of luxury than of terror. If they could only fall together and be dashed to pieces, how fit, how desirable! However, he did not let her fall, but took advantage of the support of the handrail to imprint a kiss upon her lips, lips in the daytime scorned. Then he clasped her with a renewed firmness of hold and descended the staircase. The creak of the loose stair did not awaken him, and they reached the ground floor safely. 
Freeing one of his hands from his grasp of her for a moment, he slid back the door-bar and passed out, slightly striking his stockinged toe against the edge of the door. But this he seemed not to mind, and having room for extension in the open air, he lifted her against his shoulder, so that he could carry her with ease, the absence of clothes taking much from his burden. Thus he bore her off the premises in the direction of the river a few yards distant. His ultimate intention, if he had any, she had not yet divined, and she found herself conjecturing on the matter as a third person might have done. So easefully had she delivered her whole being up to him that it pleased her to think he was regarding her as his absolute possession, to dispose of as he should choose. It was consoling, under the hovering terror of to-morrow's separation, to feel that he really recognized her now as his wife Tess, and did not cast her off, even if in that recognition he went so far as to arrogate to himself the right of harming her. Ah, now she knew what he was dreaming of. That Sunday morning, when he had borne her along through the water with the other dairymaids, who had loved him nearly as much as she, if that were possible, which Tess could hardly admit. Claire did not cross the bridge with her, but proceeding several paces on the same side, towards the adjoining mill, at length stood still on the brink of the river. Its waters, in creeping down these miles of meadowland, frequently divided, serpentining in purposeless curves, looping themselves around little islands that had no name, returning and re-embodying themselves as a broad main stream further on. Opposite the spot to which he had brought her was such a general confluence, and the river was proportionately voluminous and deep. Across it was a narrow footbridge, but now the autumn flood had washed the handrail away, leaving the bare plank only, which, lying a few inches above the speeding current, formed a giddy pathway for even steady heads. And Tess had noticed from the window of the house, in the daytime, young men walking across upon it as a feat in balancing. Her husband had possibly observed the same performance. Anyhow, he now mounted the plank, and, sliding one foot forward, advanced along it. Was he going to drown her? Probably he was. The spot was lonely, the river deep and wide enough to make such a purpose easy of accomplishment. He might drown her if he would. It would be better than parting to-morrow to lead severed lives. The swift stream raced and gyrated under them, tossing, distorting, and splitting the moon's reflected face. Spots of froth travelled past, and intercepted weeds waved behind the piles. If they could both fall together into the current now, their arms would be so tightly clasped together that they could not be saved. They would go out of the world almost painlessly, and there would be no more reproach to her, or to him for marrying her. His last half-hour with her would have been a loving one, while, if they lived till he awoke, his daytime aversion would return, and this hour would remain to be contemplated only as a transient dream. The impulse stirred in her, yet she dared not indulge it, to make a movement that would have precipitated them both into the gulf. How she valued her own life had been proved, but his, she had no right to tamper with it. He reached the other side with her in safety. 
here they were within a plantation which formed the abbey grounds and taking a new hold of her he went onward a few steps till they reached the ruined choir of the abbey church against the north wall was the empty stone coffin of an abbot in which every tourist with a turn for grim humour was accustomed to stretch himself in this claire carefully laid tess having kissed her lips a second time he breathed deeply as if a greatly desired end were attained claire then lay down on the ground alongside when he immediately fell into the deep dead slumber of exhaustion and remained motionless as a log the spurt of mental excitement which had produced the effort was now over tess sat up in the coffin the night though dry and mild for the season was more than sufficiently cold to make it dangerous for him to remain here long in his half-clothed state if he were left to himself he would in all probability stay there till the morning and be chilled to certain death she had heard of such deaths after sleepwalking but how could she dare to awaken him and let him know what he had been doing when it would mortify him to discover his folly in respect of her tess however stepping out of her stone confine shook him slightly but was unable to arouse him without being violent it was indispensable to do something for she was beginning to shiver the sheet being but a poor protection her excitement had in a measure kept her warm during the few minutes adventure but that beatific interval was over it suddenly occurred to her to try persuasion and accordingly she whispered in his ear with as much firmness and decision as she could summon let us walk on darling at the same time taking him suggestively by the arm to her relief he unresistingly acquiesced her words had apparently thrown him back into his dream which thenceforward seemed to enter on a new phase wherein he fancied she had risen as a spirit and was leading him to heaven thus she conducted him by the arm to the stone bridge in front of their residence crossing which they stood at the manor-house door tessa's feet were quite bare and the stones hurt her and chilled her to the bone but claire was in his woollen stockings and appeared to feel no discomfort there was no further difficulty she induced him to lie down on his own sofa-bed and covered him up warmly lighting a temporary fire of wood to dry any dampness out of him the noise of these attentions she thought might awaken him and secretly wished that they might but the exhaustion of his mind and body was such that he remained undisturbed as soon as they met the next morning tess divined that angel knew little or nothing of how far she had been concerned in the night's excursion though as regarded himself he may have been aware that he had not lain still in truth he had awakened that morning from a sleep deep as annihilation and during these first few moments in which the brain like a samson shaking himself is trying its strength he had some dim notion of an unusual nocturnal proceeding but the realities of his situation soon displaced conjecture on the other subject he waited in expectancy to discern some mental pointing he knew that if any intention of his concluded overnight did not vanish in the light of morning it stood on a basis approximating to one of pure reason even if initiated by impulsive feeling that it was so far therefore to be trusted 
he thus beheld in the pale morning light the resolve to separate from her not as a hot and indignant instinct but denuded of the passionateness which had made it scorch and burn standing in its bones nothing but a skeleton but none the less there claire no longer hesitated at breakfast and while they were packing the few remaining articles he showed his weariness from the night's effort so unmistakably that tess was on the point of revealing all that had happened but the reflection that it would anger him grieve him stultify him to know that he had instinctively manifested a fondness for her of which his common sense did not approve that his inclination had compromised his dignity when reason slept again deterred her it was too much like laughing at a man when sober for his erratic deeds during intoxication it just crossed her mind too that he might have a faint recollection of his tender vagary and was disinclined to allude to it from a conviction that she would take amatory advantage of the opportunity it gave her of appealing to him anew not to go he had ordered by letter a vehicle from the nearest town and soon after breakfast it arrived she saw in it the beginning of the end the temporary end at least for the revelation of his tenderness by the incident of the night raised dreams of a possible future with him the luggage was put on the top and the man drove them off the miller and the old waiting-woman expressing some surprise at their precipitate departure which clare attributed to his discovery that the mill-work was not of the modern kind which he wished to investigate a statement that was true so far as it went beyond this there was nothing in the manner of their leaving to suggest a fiasco or that they were not going together to visit friends their route lay near the dairy from which they had started with such solemn joy in each other a few days back and as clare wished to wind up his business with mr crick tess could hardly avoid paying mrs crick a call at the same time unless she would excite suspicion of their unhappy state to make the call as unobtrusive as possible they left the carriage by the wicket leading down from the high road to the dairy house and descended the track on foot side by side the withy bed had been cut and they could see over the stumps the spot to which clare had followed her when he pressed her to be his wife to the left the enclosure in which she had been fascinated by his harp and far away behind the cow-stalls the mead which had been the scene of their first embrace the gold of the summer picture was now grey the colours mean the rich soil mud and the river cold over the barton gate the dairyman saw them and came forward throwing into his face the kind of jocularity deemed appropriate at talbothays and its vicinity on the reappearance of the newly married then mrs crick emerged from the house and several others of their old acquaintance though marian and retty did not seem to be there tess valiantly bore their sly attacks and friendly humours which affected her far otherwise than they supposed in the tacit agreement of husband and wife to keep their estrangement a secret they behaved as would have been ordinary and then although she would rather there had been no word spoken on the subject tess had to hear in detail the story of marian and reddy the latter had gone home to her father's and marian had left to look for employment elsewhere they feared she would come to no good to dissipate the sadness of this recital tess went and bade all her favourite cows good-bye 
touching each of them with her hand, and as she and Clare stood side by side at leaving, as if united, body and soul, there would have been something peculiarly sorry in their aspect to one who should have seen it truly. Two limbs of one life, as they outwardly were, his arm touching hers, her skirts touching him, facing one way, as against all the dairy facing the other, speaking in their adieu as we, and yet sundered like the poles. Perhaps something unusually stiff and embarrassed in their attitude, some awkwardness in acting up to their profession of unity, different from the natural shyness of young couples, may have been apparent, for when they were gone Mrs. Crick said to her husband, "'How unnatural the brightness of their eyes did seem, and how they stood like waxen images and talked as if they were in a dream! Didn't it strike ye that twas so? Tess had almost somewhat strange in her, and she's not now quite like the proud young bride of a well-be-doing man.' They re-entered the vehicle, and were driven along the roads towards Weatherbury and Stagfoot Lane, till they reached the Lane Inn, where Clare dismissed the fly and man. They rested here a while, and, entering the vale, were next driven onward towards her home by a stranger who did not know their relations. At midway point, when Nuttlebury had been passed, and where there were crossroads, Clare stopped the conveyance and said to Tess that if she meant to return to her mother's house it was here that he would leave her. As they could not talk with freedom in the driver's presence, he asked her to accompany him a few steps on the foot along one of the branch roads. She ascended, and directing the man to wait a few minutes, they strolled away. "'Now let us understand each other,' he said gently. "'There is no anger between us.' though there is that which I cannot endure at present. I will try to bring myself to endure it. I will let you know where I go to as soon as I know myself. And if I can bring myself to bear it, if it is desirable, possible, I will come to you. But until I come to you, it will be better that you should not try to come to me. The severity of the degree seemed deadly to Tess. She saw his view of her clearly enough. He could regard her in no other light than that of one who had practised gross deceit upon him. Yet could a woman who had done even what she had done deserve all this? But she could contest the point with him no further. She simply repeated after him his own words. "'Until you come to me, I must not try to come to you.' "'Just so.' "'May I write to you?' Oh, yes, if you are ill or want anything at all. I hope that will not be the case, so that it may happen that I write first to you. I agree to the conditions, Angel, because you know best what my punishment ought to be. Only don't make it more than I can bear. That was all she said on the matter. If Tess had been artful, had she made a scene, fainted, wept hysterically in that lonely lane, notwithstanding the fury of fastidiousness with which he was possessed, he would probably not have withstood her, but her mood of long-suffering made his way easy for him, and she herself was his best advocate. Pride, too, entered into her submission, which, perhaps, was a symptom of that reckless acquiescence in chance too apparent in the whole d'Herberville family. And the many effective chords which she could have stirred by an appeal were left untouched. 
The remainder of their discourse was on practical matters only. He now handed her a packet containing a fairly good sum of money, which he had obtained from his bankers for the purpose. The brilliance, the interests in which seemed to be Tessa's for her life only, if he understood the wording of the will, he advised her to let him send to a bank for safety, and to this she readily agreed. These things arranged, he walked with Tess back to the carriage, and handed her in. The coachman was paid, and told where to drive her. Taking next his own bag and umbrella, the sole articles he had brought with him hitherwards, he bade her good-bye, and they parted, there and then. The fly moved creepingly up a hill, and Clare watched it go with an unpremeditated hope that Tess would look out of the window for one moment. But that she never thought of doing, would not have ventured to do, lying in a half-dead faint inside. Thus he beheld her recede, and in the anguish of his heart quoted a line from a poet, with peculiar emendations of his own. God's not in his heaven, all's wrong with the world. When Tess had passed over the crest of the hill, he turned to go his own way, and hardly knew that he loved her still. CHAPTER Thirty Eight. As she drove on through Blackmore Vale, and the landscape of her youth began to open around her, Tess aroused herself from her stupor. Her first thought was how would she be able to face her parents. She reached a turnpike gate which stood upon the highway to the village. It was thrown open by a stranger, not by the old man who had kept it for many years, and to whom she had been known. He had probably left on New Year's Day, the date when such changes were made. Having received no intelligence lately from her home, she asked the turnpike-keeper for news. "'Oh, nothing, miss,' he answered. "'Marlot is Marlot still. Folks have died and that. John Derbyfield, too, have had a daughter married this week to a gentleman farmer. Not from John's own house, you know. They was married elsewhere, the gentleman being of that high standing that John's own folk was not considered well be doing enough to have any part in it.' the bridegroom seeming not to know how it have been discovered that john is a old and ancient nobleman himself by blood with family skillingtons in their own vaults to this day but done out of his property in the time of the romans however sir john as we call him now kept up the wedding day as well as he could and stood treat to everybody in the parish and john's wife sung songs at the pure drop till past eleven o'clock Hearing this, Tess felt so sick at heart that she could not decide to go home publicly in the fly with her luggage and belongings. She asked the turnpike-keeper if she might deposit her things at his house for a while, and, on his offering no objection, she dismissed her carriage and went on to the village alone by a back lane. At the sight of her father's chimney she asked herself how she could possibly enter the house. Inside that cottage her relations were calmly supposing her far away on a wedding tour with a comparatively rich man, who was to conduct her to bouncing prosperity, while here she was, friendless, creeping up to the old door quite by herself, with no better place to go to in the world. She did not reach the house unobserved. Just by the garden hedge she was met by a girl who knew her, one of the two or three with whom she had been intimate at school. After making a few inquiries as to how Tess came there, her friend, unheeding her tragic look, 
interrupted with, "'But where's thy gentleman, Tess?' Tess hastily explained that he had been called away on business, and leaving her interlocutor, clambered over the garden hedge, and thus made her way to the house. As she went up the garden path, she heard her mother singing by the back door, coming in sight of which she perceived Mrs. Durbeyfield on the doorstep in the act of wringing a sheet. Having performed this without observing Tess, she went indoors, and her daughter followed her. The washing-tub stood in the old place on the same old quarter hogshead, and her mother, having thrown the sheet aside, was about to plunge her arms in anew. "'Why, Tess! My child! I thought you was married, married really and truly this time. We, we sent the cider. Yes, mother, so I am. Going to be? No, I, I am married. Married? Then where's thy husband? Oh, he's gone away for a time. Gone away? When was you married, then? The day you said? Yes, Tuesday, mother. And now it is only Saturday, and he gone away. Yes, he's gone. What's the meaning of that? Nation sees such husbands as you seem to get, say I. Mother, Tess went across to Joan Derbyfield, laid her face upon the matron's bosom, and burst into sobs. I, I don't know how to tell ye, mother. You said to me, and, and wrote to me, that I was not to tell him. But I did tell him. I couldn't help it. And he went away. Oh, you little fool, you little fool, burst out Mrs. Derbyfield, splashing Tess and herself in her agitation. My good God, that ever I should have lived to say it, but I say it again, you little fool. Tess was convulsed with weeping the tension of so many days having relaxed at last. "'I know, I know,' she gasped through her sobs. "'But, oh, my mother, I could not help it. He was so good, and, and I felt the wickedness of trying to blind him as to what had happened. If it were to be done again, I should do the same.' I could not, I, I dared not, so sin against him. But you sinned enough to marry him first. Yes, yes, that's where my misery do lie. But I thought he could get rid of me by law if he were determined not to overlook it. And, oh, if you knew, if you could only half know how I loved him how anxious I was to have him, and how wrung I was between caring so much for him and my wish to be fair to him. Tess was so shaken that she could get no further, and sank, a helpless thing, into a chair. "'Well, well, what's done can't be undone. I'm sure I don't know why children of my bringing forth should all be bigger simpletons than other people's, not to know better than to blab such a thing as that, when he couldn't have found it out till too late. Here Mrs. Derbyfield began shedding tears on her own account as a mother to be pitied. What your father will say, I don't know, she continued, 
for he's been talking about the wedding up at Rolliver's and the pure drop every day since, and about his family getting back to their rightful position through you, poor silly man, and now you've made this mess of it. The Lord, the Lord! As if to bring matters to focus, Tessa's father was heard approaching at that moment. He did not, however, enter immediately, and Mrs. Durbeyfield said that she would break the bad news to him herself, Tess keeping out of sight for the present. After her first burst of disappointment, Joan began to take the mishap as she had taken Tess's original trouble, as she would have taken a wet holiday or failure in the potato crop, as a thing which had come upon them irrespective of desert or folly, a chance external impingement to be borne with, not a lesson. Tess retreated upstairs, and beheld casually that the beds had been shifted, and new arrangements made. Her old bed had been adapted for two younger children. There was no place here for her now. The room below being unsealed, she could hear most of what went on there. Presently her father entered, apparently carrying in a live hen. He was a foot-haggler now, having been obliged to sell his second horse, and he travelled with his basket on his arm. The hen had been carried about this morning as it was often carried, to show people that he was in his work, though it had lain, with its legs tied, under the table at Rolliver's for more than an hour. "'We've just had up a story about—' Derbyfield began, and thereupon related in detail to his wife a discussion which had arisen at the inn about the clergy, originated by the fact of his daughter having married into a clerical family. "'They was formerly styled Sir, like my own ancestry,' he said, "'though nowadays their true style, strictly speaking, is clerk only.' As Tess had wished that no great publicity should be given to the event, he had mentioned no particulars. He hoped she would remove that prohibition soon. He proposed that the couple should take Tess's own name, D'Urberville, as uncorrupted. It was better than her husband's. He asked if any letter had come from her that day. Then Mrs. Durbeyfield informed him that no letter had come, but Tess, unfortunately, had come herself. When at length the collapse was explained to him, a sullen mortification, not usual with Durbeyfield, overpowered the influence of the cheering glass. Yet the intrinsic quality of the event moved his touchy sensitiveness less than its conjectured effect upon the minds of others. "'To think now that this was to be the end of it,' said Sir John, "'and I, with a family vault under that there church of King's Beer as big as Squire Jollard's ale-cellar, and my folk lying there in sixes and sevens, as genuine county bones and marrow as any recorded in history. And now, to be sure what they fellers at Rolliver's and the Pure Drop will say to me, how they'll squint and glane and say, this is your mighty match, is it? This is your getting back to the true level of your forefathers in King Norman's time. I feel this is too much, Joan. I shall put an end to myself, title and all. I can bear it no longer. But she can't make him keep her if he's married her. Why, yes, but she won't think of doing that. Do you think he really have married her? Or is it like the first? Poor Tess, who had heard as far as this, could not bear to hear more. 
the perception that her word could be doubted even here in her own parental house set her mind against the spot as nothing else could have done how unexpected were the attacks of destiny and if her father doubted her a little would not neighbours and acquaintance doubt her much oh she could not live long at home a few days accordingly were all that she allowed herself here at the end of which time she received a short note from clare informing her that he had gone to the north of england to look at a farm in her craving for the lustre of true possession as his wife and to hide from her parents the vast extent of the division between them she made use of this letter as her reason for again departing leaving them under the impression that she was setting out to join him still further to screen her husband from any imputation of unkindness to her she took twenty-five of the fifty pounds clare had given her and handed the sum over to her mother as if the wife of a man like angel clare could well afford it saying that it was a slight return for the trouble and humiliation she had brought upon them in years past with this assertion of her dignity she bade them farewell and after that there were lively doings in the durbeyfield household for some time on the strength of tessa's bounty her mother saying and indeed believing that the rupture which had arisen between the young husband and wife had adjusted itself under their strong feeling that they could not live apart from each other chapter thirty nine it was three weeks after the marriage that clare found himself descending the hill which led to the well-known parsonage of his father with his downward course the tower of the church rose into the evening sky in a manner of inquiry as to why he had come and no living person in the twilighted town seemed to notice him still less to expect him he was arriving like a ghost and the sound of his own footsteps was almost an encumbrance to be got rid of the picture of life had changed for him before this time he had known it but speculatively now he thought he knew it as a practical man though perhaps he did not even yet nevertheless humanity stood before him no longer in the pensive sweetness of italian art but in the staring and ghastly attitudes of a weird's museum and with the leer of a study by van beers his conduct during those first weeks had been desultory beyond description after mechanically attempting to pursue his agricultural plans as though nothing unusual had happened in the manner recommended by the great and wise men of all ages he concluded that very few of those great and wise men had ever gone so far outside themselves as to test the feasibility of their counsel this is the chief thing be not perturbed said the pagan moralist that was just clare's own opinion but he was perturbed let not your heart be troubled neither let it be afraid said the nazarene clare chimed in cordially but his heart was troubled all the same how he would have liked to confront those two great thinkers and earnestly appeal to them as fellow-man to fellow-men and ask them to tell him their method his mood transmuted itself into a dogged indifference till at length he fancied he was looking on his own existence with the passive interest of an outsider he was embittered by the conviction that all this desolation had been brought about by the accident of her being a d'urberville when he found that tess came of that exhausted ancient line and was not of the new tribes from below as he had fondly dreamed why had he not stoically abandoned her in fidelity to his principles 
this was what he had got by apostasy and his punishment was deserved then he became weary and anxious and his anxiety increased he wondered if he had treated her unfairly he ate without knowing what he ate and drank without tasting as the hours dropped past as the motive of each act in the long series of bygone days presented itself to his view he perceived how intimately the notion of having Tess as a dear possession was mixed up with all his schemes and words and ways. In going hither and thither he observed in the outskirts of a small town a red and blue placard setting forth the great advantages of the empire of Brazil as a field for the emigrating agriculturist. Land was offered there on exceptionally advantageous terms. Brazil somewhat attracted him as a new idea. Tess could eventually join him there, and perhaps, in that country of contrasting scenes and notions and habits, the conventions would not be so operative which made life with her seem impracticable to him here. In brief, he was strongly inclined to try Brazil, especially as the season of going thither was just at hand. With this view he was returning to Eminster to disclose his plan to his parents and to make the best explanation he could make of arriving without Tess, short of revealing what had actually separated them. As he reached the door the new moon shone upon his face, just as the old one had done in the small hours of that morning when he had carried his wife in his arms across the river to the graveyard of the monks, but his face was thinner now. Clare had given his parents no warning of his visit, and his arrival stirred the atmosphere of the vicarage as the dive of the kingfisher stirs a quiet pool. His father and mother were both in the drawing-room, but neither of his brothers was now at home. Angel entered, and closed the door quietly behind him. "'But where's your wife, dear Angel?' cried his mother. "'How you surprise us!' "'She's at her mother's, temporarily.' I have come home rather in a hurry, because I've decided to go to Brazil. Brazil! Why, they are all Roman Catholics there, surely. Are they? I hadn't thought of that. But even the novelty and painfulness of his going to a papistical land could not displace for long Mr. and Mrs. Clare's natural interest in their son's marriage. We had a brief note three weeks ago announcing that it had taken place, said Mrs. Clare and your father sent your godmother's gift to her as you know of course it was best that none of us should be present especially as you preferred to marry her from the dairy and not at her home wherever that may be it would have embarrassed you and given us no pleasure your brothers felt that very strongly now it is done we do not complain particularly if she suits you for the business you have chosen to follow instead of the ministry of the gospel yet I wish I could have seen her first, Angel, or have known a little more about her. We sent her no present of our own, not knowing what would best give her pleasure, but you must suppose it only delayed. Angel, there is no irritation in my mind, or your father's, against you for this marriage, but we have thought it much better to reserve our liking for your wife till we could see her, and now you have not brought her. It seems strange what has happened he replied that it had been thought best by them that she should go to her parents home for the present whilst he came there i don't mind telling you dear mother he said 
that I always meant to keep her away from this house till I should feel she could come with credit to you. But this idea of Brazil is quite a recent one. If I do go, it will be unadvisable for me to take her on this my first journey. She will remain at her mother's till I come back. And I shall not see her before you start. He was afraid they would not. His original plan had been, as he had said, to refrain from bringing her there for some little while, not to wound their prejudices, feelings in any way, and for other reasons he had adhered to it. He would have to visit home in the course of a year if he went out at once, and it would be possible for them to see her before he started a second time, with her. A hastily prepared supper was brought in, and Clare made further exposition of his plans. His mother's disappointment at not seeing the bride still remained with her. Clare's late enthusiasm for Tess had infected her through her maternal sympathies, till she had almost fancied that a good thing could come out of Nazareth, a charming woman out of Talbothay's dairy. She watched her son as he ate. "'Can you not describe her? I am sure she's very pretty, Angel.' "'Of that there can be no question,' he said, with a zest which covered its bitterness. "'And that she is pure and virtuous goes without question. Pure and virtuous, of course, she is. I can see her quite distinctly. You said the other day that she was fine in figure, roundly built, and deep red lips like Cupid's bow, dark eyelashes and brows, an immense rope of hair like a ship's cable, and large eyes, violety, bluey, blackish. I did, mother. I quite see her. And living in such seclusion, she naturally had scarce ever seen any young man from the world without, till she saw you. Scarcely. You were her first love? Of course. There are worse wives than those simple, rosy-mouthed, robust girls of the farm. Certainly I could have wished—well, since my son is to be an agriculturalist, it is perhaps but proper that his wife should have been accustomed to an outdoor life. His father was less inquisitive, but when the time came for the chapter from the Bible which was always read before evening prayers, the vigour observed to Mrs. Clare, "'I think, since Angel has come, that it will be more appropriate to read the thirty-first of Proverbs than the chapter which we should have had in the usual course of our reading.' "'Yes, certainly,' said Mrs. Clare, "'the words of King Lemuel.' She could cite chapter and verse as well as her husband. My dear son, your father has decided to read us the chapter in Proverbs in praise of a virtuous wife. We shall not need to be reminded to apply the words to the absent one. May heaven shield her in all her ways. A lump rose in Clare's throat. The portable lectern was taken out from the corner and set in the middle of the fireplace. The two old servants came in, and Angel's father began to read at the tenth verse, of the aforesaid chapter. Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. She riseth while it is yet night, and giveth meat to her household. She girdeth her loins with strength, and strengtheneth her arms. She perceiveth that her merchandise is good, her candle goeth not out by night. She looketh well to the ways of her household, and eateth not the bread of idleness. Her children arise up, and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praiseth her. Many daughters have done virtuously, 
but thou excellest them all when prayers were over his mother said i could not help thinking how very aptly that chapter your dear father read applied in some of its particulars to the woman you have chosen the perfect woman you see was a working woman not an idler not a fine lady but one who used her hands and her head and her heart for the good of others her children arise up and call her blessed her husband also and he praiseth her many daughters have done virtuously but she excelleth them all well i wish i could have seen her angel since she is pure and chaste she would have been refined enough for me clare could bear this no longer his eyes were full of tears which seemed like drops of molten lead he bade a quick good-night to these sincere and simple souls whom he loved so well he knew neither the world the flesh nor the devil in their own hearts only as something vague and external to themselves he went to his own chamber his mother followed him and tapped at his door clare opened it to discover her standing without with anxious eyes angel she asked is there something wrong that you go away so soon i am quite sure you are not yourself i am not quite mother said he about her now my son i know it is that i know it is about her have you quarrelled in these three weeks we have not exactly quarrelled he said but we have had a difference angel is she a young woman whose history will bear investigation with a mother's instinct mrs clare had put her finger on the kind of trouble that would cause such a disquiet as seemed to agitate her son she is spotless he replied and felt that if it had sent him to eternal hell there and then he would have told that lie then never mind the rest after all there are few purer things in nature than an unsullied country maid any crudeness of manner which may offend your more educated sense at first will i am sure disappear under the influence of your companionship and tuition such terrible sarcasm of blind magnanimity brought home to clare the secondary perception that he had utterly wrecked his career by this marriage which had not been among his early thoughts after the disclosure true on his own account he cared very little about his career but he had wished to make it at least a respectable one on account of his parents and brothers and now as he looked into the candle its flame dumbly expressed to him that it was made to shine on sensible people and that it abhorred lighting the face of a dupe and a failure when his agitation had cooled he would be at moments incensed with his poor wife for causing a situation in which he was obliged to practise deception on his parents he almost talked to her in his anger as if she had been in the room and then her cooing voice plaintive in expostulation disturbed the darkness the velvet touch of her lips passed over his brow and he could distinguish in the air the warmth of her breath this night the woman of his belittling deprecations was thinking how great and good her husband was but over them both there hung a deeper shade than the shade which angel clare perceived namely the shade of his own limitations with all his attempted independence of judgment this advanced and well-meaning young man 
a sampled product of the last five-and-twenty years, was yet the slave to custom and conventionality when surprised back into his early teachings. No prophet had told him, and he was not prophet enough to tell himself, that essentially this young wife of his was as deserving of the praise of King Lemuel as any other woman endowed with the same dislike of evil, her moral value having to be reckoned not by achievement, but by tendency. Moreover, the figure near at hand suffers on such occasion, because it shows up its sorriness without shade, while vague figures afar off are honoured, in that their distance makes artistic virtues of their stains. In considering what Tess was not, he overlooked what she was, and forgot that the defective can be more than the entire. End of Part 2